Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the number one source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers all around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you have been craving. Shop online now at DiabolicDVD.com. Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is also brought to you by Fright Rags. Fright Rags has been giving you the best in horror, apparel, and accessories since 2003, offering hundreds of products for fan-favorite films. This week, they want you to obey and consume with the They Live collection, featuring new shirts, classic reprints, and socks. Also this week, the triumphant return of the Tea of Mystery. You choose your size, and we will send you a random shirt shrouded in a black package so its contents are completely unknown to all who hold it. Only $9 in limited supply, so grab them while they last. Available exclusively at fright-rags.com. Nightmare University listeners can get 10% off when they use the code NIGHTMARE2020. Again, Nightmare University listeners can get 10% off when they use the code NIGHTMARE2020. Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is also brought to you by Fangoria.com. It's a little crazy out there right now, so Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the first 15 issues of the original run of Fangoria magazine and counting. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic is streaming on Shudder now. And welcome to Nightmare University. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry. A couple of quick plugs before we get started tonight. First off, if you have not been listening to the podcast Penning Terror, which is currently posting on the Nightmare University feed, I really recommend checking it out. It is fantastic interviews with some of the best minds in horror writing right now. Looks at fiction horror writing, short stories, novels, and then also at screenplay writing in the horror world. So some amazing interviews, and that is Penning Terror. I also just wanted to mention last week's office hours um, definitely raised some discussion questions online. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I recommend checking it out. I very speculat- speculatively um, explore what type of subgenres may come out of the pandemic. Like what are the next wave of popular horror films going to be? And it's all very kind of, I'll call it informed speculation, but it's mostly kind of opening up a discussion of kind of what we're all going through and what type of horror films may lend themselves to this. And so check that out if you have not already. And then I also want to quickly plug um, the Nightmare University Patreon page. 
on the Patreon page, um, there are two main things that we do, which is post cheat sheets for every episode where you can get lists of the films that I recommend off of every episode, some of the more obscure ones. And then also you can get um, a different podcast called Deep Cuts where each month, um, there's I do a couple of them each month, and myself, and usually I'll be joined by uh, a guest. Um, Elric Kane joins me a lot, and we deep dive into really obscure and niche titles. So on last week's episode, we looked at um, two really obscure Giallo titles, In the Folds of the Flesh and Femina Rydens, and that is happening on the Nightmare University Patreon page. So with that, for this week's episode, I had originally planned to do pandemic horror films, um, or more of contagion horror films. I was going to look at ones that centered on infections and outbreaks. Things like The Bay, Contagion, um, Outbreak, uh, Infection, um, just any movie where there's some type of widespread illness. The Crazies is one of my faves. And what I realized when I started looking at these was it, it didn't necessarily make me feel good right now. Um, that even though that I have found that as this has been going on emotionally, I am gravitating more and more towards horror films. Like I want to watch a lot more than I usually have been. And it's not that I have so much extra time now. I am a mother of, of two kids. Um, so I'm now a homeschool teacher and I have them with me the entire day long. And so I'm actually watching less than I usually do because I usually watch at least one horror film a day. Um, but I'm watching less, but at the same time, I found myself longing to watch more horror. So it's kind of like an emotional, like I want to escape from everything that's going, going on. But at the same time, when I started watching pandemic horror films, it felt bleak to me. It felt like I, I needed to mentally kind of separate myself from everything. And this may just be me because I've seen plenty of people online watching Contagion and Outbreak and, and comparing everything that we're going through now versus what was um, fictionalized in the movies. So this may just be me. But I personally um, needed kind of an emotional break. And so the two things that I have been gravitating towards lately are really intense horror, um, really graphic over-the-top horror, which is why last uh, week you got the Video Nasties episode, and then also more kind of of lighter horror. And that is where this week's episode comes in as I dive into horror musicals. Now, horror musicals are incredibly polarizing within the horror community, and I get this. Um, and I'm going to go into why horror musicals are a hard sell for a lot of people in a second, but I'm going to start with my history with musicals. So I grew up in Appalachia in a very, very small town where we did not have a lot of musical theater. We had a community theater, but they did not do a lot of musicals when I was a kid, or at least I never even saw them. Um, but we lived about an hour and a half from Washington, D.C. And my mom, when I was a kid, was really trying to finish up her graduate school. Um, she was doing a, a master's in physics. And I remember that whenever my mom needed to work on her schoolwork over the weekend, my dad would get tickets for whatever musicals were playing in D.C. And we would drive the hour and a half into D.C. and we would see musicals together. Now, this was a big thing for me because my dad could give two fucks about musicals. Like, my dad's a diesel mechanic. He likes country music. He likes tractor pulls. He um, likes going, he likes designing steam engines. 
Um, he, he likes farm auctions. Like he loves watching farm auctions and NASCAR. He does not like musicals. But he knew that that was something that I would enjoy and that it would be something he could take me to. And it has become some of my most treasured memories of my childhood. I mean, he also took me to NASCAR events and they were awesome and I have great memories from those too. But sitting with my dad and seeing things like Cats and Phantom of the Opera and Fiddler on the Roof and Little Shop of Horrors um, in these professional productions, like it changed me. So much so that by the time I was in high school, I was doing musical theater. I did musical theater in college and that really fed into what was my first career long before I ever started working in horror film. I worked as a teacher and what I primarily taught was film, which was always a passion of mine. And dance, which really did come out of my musical theater background. Um, I ended up moving to New York City. And within a couple of weeks of being in New York City, I started working in horror films, which was a huge passion of mine the entire way through. But then I realized at this time that that's where my two passions have always lied. Musical theater, specifically the performative nature of them, the combination of theater and dance together in this kind of over-the-top performative style, and then also horror films, really intense graphic movies. And you know, for the longest time, I thought that I was like a solo unicorn in this world, that it was just me out there who was obsessed with really kind of horrific extreme content And then also this kind of chipper over the top performative dancing. And what I quickly realized when I started working in horror is, oh no, there are hordes of us out there who will watch just as many Disney over the top singing, you know, Little Mermaid-ish films as will watch this absolutely graphic content. And that it's not unusual for fans to be able to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to watch Moulin Rouge. Now I'm going to watch a Saw film. Now I'm going to watch Sound of Music. And now I'm going to watch Hostel. And to be able to bounce back and forth between the two. I found many people like this throughout my decades now of working in horror. Um, Some of them have become close friends of mine just because we really do connect on kind of this, oh, you're into this too. Um, Graham Skipper, I'm looking at you, BJ Colin Jello. Um, Just, you know, there's certain people who just really gravitate to musicals and horror. But because this is a very preferred taste of combining the two into horror musicals, These are an incredibly hard sell. Not even just today. Horror musicals have kind of always been a harder sell, but they are especially hard today. So first off, in the current climate, musicals are not popular with mass audiences. We have occasional standouts right now. You might be able to make La La Land and have it be kind of a cute thing that goes a little bit more wide. But in general, musicals are not something that we are seeing all the time. And a lot of them are kind of hit or miss. For every La La Land, there's a Cats. And so it's hard to pull them off cinematically. For a lot of history, musicals have slowly been changing over to what is viewed as a woman's genre. And I hate that term. And I put it in quote marks even as I'm recording this podcast just because I consider it to be such kind of a derogatory term. But that is kind of how they've come to be seen over time, that women like musicals. And because of that, they are a really hard sell to investors. Musicals are super expensive to make, and they don't necessarily have a huge wide appeal. They often have extensive casts, 
huge amounts of production design. They usually have these lavish set pieces. There's also a lot of other considerations that come in when you're looking at funding a musical. The whole idea that now you're having to pay for musical licensing. Um, it's not even just having people talk on set. Now you're having to hire musicians and pre-record music to go along with the actual film itself. There is a lot more involved than there is in just making a talkie film. But the mix of horror and what is considered to be happy and to the point where it's kind of breaking reality is often even a harder sell than normal musicals are because it becomes two really niche audiences kind of merging together. People who like musicals and people who like horror movies. Both of these are considered to be kind of niche culty audiences to begin with. So when you're now trying to mix them together into people who like both of these things mixed together, it becomes an even smaller grouping. Plus, there is the current notion that musicals are kind of kitsch, that they're not necessarily taken seriously. Now, we do have serious musicals. If you look at something like Moulin Rouge, Les Miserables, these are rather serious musicals dealing with very, very heavy issues. But what we've seen as of late, especially on the stage, when horror gets translated into musical, it becomes more kitschy. Most are suddenly viewed as more over-the-top comedies. It's hard to kind of gauge that emotional range within a musical that you might necessarily get in a horror film. So when you look at things like Evil Dead and Carrie being kind of turned into these stage musicals, they become a little less serious and a little more campy. And that is a much harder sell on screen as well because now you're even kind of pushing it out of the horror realm and making it more into a comedic, but it's still gory and it's still got notes of horror. And so just across the board, horror musicals are a hard sell. But that said, some of them still get made, so let's explore them. But first, we are going to start with kind of the history of musical film across the board so that we can understand why horror musicals have evolved the way that they have. So musical film, let's start by defining it. This is a film using music, but even more so than that. It's not just that it has a great soundtrack. The music needs to be sung by the characters in the film. Usually these are kind of presented as production numbers. Usually the musicals will contain several of these and the music is somewhat diegetic. And this is your big fancy film term for the day. And this means that the characters in the film can hear it too. They are aware of it. And so it might just be part of the reality that exists in their world. If you look at a movie like Singing in the Rain, people are just standing there and then they just break into song. And sometimes they're performing it. It's part of a stage production. And then other times they're just singing because they're happy and they're going to sing about it. And so that is diegetic in that the music exists in the same world as the characters. It's not like a soundtrack where it's something that only we can hear and it's not part of their environment. So then let's look at the different types of musicals. We have book musicals, jukebox musicals, stage musicals, operas, and then rock operas. And there are a bajillion different combinations of musicals within these kind of five subgroups, but these are the main subgroups of them. Book musicals are what we think of most traditionally as musicals. These are things like Grease or Little Shop of Horrors where characters tell a story and then will break for a song. Usually these are elaborate numbers with dances. The songs occur in the real world and function as if the plot's moving forward, as in Little Shop of Horrors where we're going to sing a song about the environment in which we live 
downtown and Skid Row, but we're going to do it through song. I'm going to talk about how much I love Seymour, but I'm going to do it through song now. And so these function as if the songs are occurring in the character's world and it is just part of their environment to suddenly break into song and dance. Next up, we have jukebox musicals. And these are where the, the, when the writers create them, they use previously existing songs, but they might mix in one or two new ones. So this is what Moulin Rouge is. Also Mamma Mia, um, Outcast Idlewild, Across the Universe, even Trolls. I just watched uh, Trolls with my daughter last night, the old one and the new one. We watched them back to back. And these are all jukebox musicals in that the majority of the songs contained herein were created before the musical was. But then they might mix in one or two new ones. And then we get stage musicals. And stage musicals are kind of what we see a lot of historically when we get into film history, which I'll talk about in a sec. And these are where they are built around stage shows. The whole idea that these things are being performed. Pitch Perfect functions as one. Chicago, one of my favorite musicals of all time, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Um, where the whole setup is that these groups of characters are performing and so therefore most of the performances are done as part of stage productions. Um, Also Streets of Fire functions like this. And then we have sung through operas. The majority of it is just sung through. Some of the ones like this that exist in the horror space, Repo the Genetic Opera, The Who's Tommy, and Phantom of the Opera are all sung through musical or sung through operas. Repo the Genetic Opera, The Who's Tommy, and Phantom of the Opera are all sung through operas. And that moves us into rock musicals or rock operas. And this is where we see a good amount of horror musicals living. Not all of them by any means, but a lot of them live here. We see things like Phantom of the Paradise, um, The Apple, which has a lot of horror notes to it. And so these ones are really pushing more of a rock edge. They focus on a really contemporary, more postmodern society. Most of these are dark, meaning that they're really bleak. They have much heavier tones. If you're looking at something like Jesus Christ Superstar or Rent or Hair or Hedwig and the Angry Inch, They are using this rock and roll music, but they're using it to tell this very contemporary, heavy, heavy story. But again, most musicals are multiples of these. If we even look at something like Moulin Rouge, it is a book musical in that the characters just break into song suddenly. It is a stage musical in the fact that they are often performing these on a stage as part of actual performances that exist in their world. And it's a jukebox musical in the fact that all of these songs existed previously except for one or two of them. The whole concept of musicals existed long before film. And even as film was coming to fruition, we were seeing musicals existing mostly as vaudevillian acts where people would come out and they would do songs and dances and little sketches in between. The first musical that we see on screen, the first true musical, would be The Jazz Singer, which is riddled with racism, but it is considered to be our first musical. And because this was one of the first ones, followed with Wizard of Oz, Suddenly, musicals became big business at the start of sound in film in the 1930s, moving into the 40s and 50s. And so after Wizard of Oz, loaded with music, we then see musicals boom on screen. We get Busby Berkeley. And even though that Busby Berkeley stuff was not innately horror, it was never intended to be horror, it is filled with so much horror imagery that I recommend checking some of it out, especially if you're a horror filmmaker. 
Um, things like Gold Diggers of 1933. The Lullaby of Broadway sequence is so frightening. It's truly filmed with the same type of German expressionism that you see in things like Nosferatu and the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And so even though that horror was not yet infusing musicals in quite the way that it's going to in later decades, you're still seeing these really heavy kind of um, dark, creepy tones coming into a lot of the, the choreography, the camera placement, and just the general tone of some of these. Continuing forward throughout the 40s and even into the 50s, uh, we see a huge amount of musicals booming. Um, it really becomes one of the most popular genres in America, and a lot of the movies being made are musicals. Many of them definitely dealing with more adult content, but none of them exactly horror per se. I do have to give a shout out to Disney and their film Fantasia in 1940, which though not exactly a musical, it is combining visuals and dance and music all together in one. And so the Night on Bald Mountain sequence still messes me up when I think back about it from my childhood. I mean, it is total kinder trauma. So that is a brief shout out to Disney who will become more integral in kind of building horror musicals in a couple of decades. As we move into the 1950s, we see a surplus of musicals coming out, most of them kind of being done under two separate production units. The first one being the Freed unit who was making things like Singing in the Rain and Guys and Dolls and American in Paris and the second one under Rodgers and Hammerstein who was making things like Oklahoma, The King and I, South Pacific, and Carousel. Both of these groups were making stuff about adults in adult situations, but again, none of it was horror. We do not start seeing horror musicals until the 1960s. And the 1960s is when film across the board gets more heavy. America goes to war and suddenly we get this element of disillusionment. We start getting all of these different forms of rebellion creeping in. And we get rock music really starting to explore the element of film. We see Elvis on screen. We see the Beatles making rock musicals. And we also see the Who's Tommy, which though is not 100% horror, it's definitely full of weird dream logic and general nightmarish imagery. We also get a tiny little film there in 1967 called Hillbillies in a Haunted House. Hillbillies in a Haunted House was trying to marry two worlds that were really popular at the time period. And this is kind of the campy drive-in horror film married to the singing cowboy film. By this time, a lot of musicals and westerns had been combined and we were seeing these kind of singing cowboy films. So this was the idea of taking Nashville country stars and campy drive-in horror fare and merging them together. The film did not do well, so I don't think it, it really influenced a lot to come, but it is one of the very first horror musicals where it was intended to be that, that I can point to. As we move into the 1970s, we really start seeing more horror musicals happen in general. Sweeney Todd hits Broadway in 1979. Phantom of the Paradise, De Palma's film, is a modern um, yet futuristic retelling of the Phantom of the Opera. We see really adult themes creeping into things like Jesus Christ Superstar, all that jazz, cabaret, hair, um, the whiz, Godspell, all of these dealing with much heavier adult themes than a lot of the musical that came previously. And a lot of them not necessarily having happy endings. But I have to give major props to Phantom of the Paradise from 1974. 
And what Brian De Palma did in this was really say um, that it is okay to really push the horror angle in this, to really explore weird stuff in musicals and really go for it. And even though that Phantom of the Paradise is quite possibly the most well-known horror musical from this time period, we see other films of the same time um, decade starting to infuse music in ways that is more akin to a musical. In Psychomania, a British motorcycle movie that I absolutely love, there is a funeral scene where suddenly everyone starts singing and it's this very musical style thing. If you think about the movie The Wicker Man, there's this amazing scene where actress Brett Eklund starts singing this random song and banging on the guy's door about how turned on she is. And it is um, this strange moment within the film, but ultimately what has happened is the film just became a musical. That we went from this kind of heavy, very intense horror film to suddenly a character just broke into song. And it's an unusual effect. I absolutely love it. That's my favorite scene in The Wicker Man. But at the same time, many people, even contemporary horror films, I know that will still look at that film as a total classic, are really put off when the character breaks into song. And so right there, you can see how some people can really handle musicals and gravitate towards them and find them to be enchanting and fantastic reality breaks while other people just can't buy into it. And it's those songs that really pull them out of the moment that they are engaged in the movie up until the part that the singing happens. And so it really is just kind of a this or that. Even you can go along with the music or you can't. But few films have had such an effect on horror musicals to come as 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Rocky Horror Picture Show was based on a 1973 stage show. The film version of The Rocky Horror Picture Show was made in 1975, directed by Jim Sharman and written by Sharman and Richard O'Brien. It was produced by Fox and it was shot in the UK on an estate that had previously been mostly used for Hammer films. The movie was considered to be a total bomb until the Waverly Theater started doing midnight screenings of it, and then the audience started responding. Not even just liking the film, but they literally started responding to the screen, yelling stuff at it, throwing stuff, and really turning it into much more of an audience experience, something communal, something that required action, something that you had to be going repeatedly to understand what to do. The movie, which is ultimately a tribute to the films of the 1950s told through these like peppy poppy um, rock ballads, really became solidified as horror musical cult fare. For many of us, this was our first horror musical. This one was followed up with Shock Treatment in 1981, um, which is the sequel to Rocky Horror. Yes, Rocky Horror Picture Show has a sequel, and I'm going to talk about Shock Treatment in just a little bit. But because of the effect of Rocky Horror, that is what a lot of horror musicals to come get compared to. The idea that they are automatically culty because Rocky Horror is culty. And so that's what you see a lot of horror musicals still get classified is, oh, they'll have a cult following. They will have an incredibly ravenous yet small and niche audience that loves them, but they're not for general populace. And so whether or not this is true, this is where most horror musicals get classified now, which is, again, why they are a hard sell to get made. But... At this same time, in the 70s into the late 70s, we were seeing a lot of musicals have really good success. 
Things like Grease and all that jazz and Cabaret, they were really having a heyday. And then additionally, there was Saturday Night Fever, which was not a musical, but it was definitely structured like one where it was um, a heavy, very adult plot with these little dance breaks. And because of the success of Grease and Saturday Night Fever and other films like this, we see a surge of really adult, really trippy musicals in the early 1980s. Things like The Apple, Xanadu, Streets of Fire, but this trend died really, really quickly um, by about the mid-80s. We weren't seeing as many of these adult musicals. But in 1986, we did get The Little Shop of Horrors. Based on the Roger Corman film starring Jack Nicholson, this was a massive project with an all-star cast at the time period, and it was well-received and is still considered to be um, a great film. A lot of horror films still gravitate to it so much so that they did a remake of it on Fox a couple of years ago. And just across the board, this is one that a lot of horror fans still point to as being um, a perfect mix of kind of horror and singing, even though that this one did not push the horror very much, there's definitely a lot of implied gore there within. So by the late 80s, something else happens, which brings me to another reason that musicals are a hard sell. A lot of times, I mentioned up at the top that musicals are often considered to be kind of a, quote, woman's genre. They are also considered to be a, quote, children's genre. And a lot of this is because of Disney. Now, Disney has been mus making musicals for a very long time. When we look back at films like Pinocchio, Cinderella, um, Sleeping Beauty, they all have some type of musical component that goes along with them. But Disney went full musical in 1989 when they gave us The Little Mermaid. Loaded with music, it became a huge thing with kids, and the soundtrack sold just as well as the actual movie did. They followed it up really quickly with Beauty and the Beast. Again, just loaded it up with songs. And then in 1993, they made Nightmare Before Christmas, which is one of my absolute favorite musicals. Um, still considered to be a cartoon and definitely kid fair, but still a beautiful, beautiful mix of music and horror and all things that I love about Halloween. And Disney still today has a strong foothold in the musical space, really still pushing that, that notion that musicals are for children. And it is true that there is not a car ride that I go on with my kids where we do not have to listen to Moana or Frozen or any number of Disney soundtracks, including their new um, Adventures into Horror Fair with Zombies the Musical, which they just made a second of. But even though that Disney has this really strong foothold with musicals in the kids space, I'm excited to say that over the past decade, we have really seen a lot of people experimenting with musicals in the horror space. Not even so much in the campy and kitsch vein that we saw with Rocky Horror or even Little Shop of Horrors where everything's very kind of overacted and over the top and everyone feels more like caricatures. We have seen a lot of horror filmmakers really playing around with portraying the characters as more real, with infusing the songs with reality, with conviction, with emotion, with more gravity than we've seen in a lot of prior decades. So right now, we are either seeing, and this is in broad terms of kind of commercial film, we are either seeing musicals as being these big budget studio affairs like La La, Man, La, La Land, The Greatest Showman, Cats, Les Miserables, or we are seeing them in Disney form. But we are also seeing these smaller independent horror musicals, which I'm going to talk about in a sec. 
Additionally, and this is where I get really excited, we are seeing a lot of stage adaptations. People taking horror stories and horror movies that have existed previously and trying to turn them into musicals. And with these, you can see them go either way. Some of them become more campy and kitschy and over the top and caricature-ish, and other ones are done dead serious with music involved. And those are become my favorite. I absolutely love those. So just some example of so some examples of movies that have been converted to stage musicals over the past couple of years, Evil Dead, Toxic Avenger the musical, Beetlejuice, which I saw on Broadway last summer, vastly different from the movie, but somehow still great. Carrie, there is an American Psycho the musical, Young Frankenstein, and there's an Exorcist musical as well. So far, and to the best of my knowledge, none of these kind of screen to stage um, musical productions, things like Evil Dead and Beetlejuice and Carrie in musical form, have made it back to screen. But God, I would love to see some of them try. I would love to see the American Psycho musical try to come back to screen and take it dead serious and pull in all of the emotional conviction that they use in the stage production. So with that, if we're looking at contemporary horror musicals, they usually will still fall into two categories. We see the campy and self-aware. These ones treat the music as kind of a hyper real device. We see mugging to the camera, they feel very overdramatic and a lot of kind of more caricature moves for humor. Some of the ones that qualify as this that are recent are things like Reefer Madness the Musical, Poultry Geist, Stage Fright, or Cannibal the Musical. And then we have the ones that really try to take it serious and get dark. And these are ones like Sweeney Todd or Repo the Genetic Opera or even Anna and the Apocalypse. Anna and the Apocalypse, which came out just last year, is a comedy and there are funny moments in it, but no one in the movie plays it as a comedy. They play it as a dead serious horror film that is happening to them. And it's also a book musical in that they just break into song and this happens in their world. Because the majority of horror musicals that are currently coming out are existing on this independent level, they're not being made by major studios. They're being made by smaller independent filmmakers or oftentimes in contemporary markets, they're being made internationally. Because again, it's hard to make a horror musical in the States and get it funded by a studio. So therefore, they're being done by independents or people overseas. So I wanted to wrap up this episode with 10 recent contemporary horror musical essentials. And these are ones that I consider to be absolutely amazing. Some of them ones that I say, you know, don't miss this and other ones are total deep cuts. Um, so I'm going to start with Phantom of the Paradise from 1974, which is not recent or contemporary. So I'm already going against the whole process of my list, but just bear with me here. Phantom of the Paradise is an essential. This one gets overlooked by a lot of horror fans who will be huge fans of De Palma. They will absolutely love huge amounts of his work, but then as soon as they realize that Phantom of the Paradise is a musical, they stop and they don't keep watching. And that is a damn shame because it is such a good movie. So um, before you dive into any of my other recommendations, go back, watch Phantom of the Paradise from 1974. So now into some of the more recent essentials. I'm going to start with Suck from 2010. And this was one that I didn't even discover until a couple of years ago when somebody I met at a festival 
um, when I was completely gushing about my love of horror musicals with somebody, had said, hey, did you see Suck? And this is essentially about a vampire group that forms a rock band. And that makes it sound really campy, and there's definitely a lot of campy elements to it, but it is fun. And the music is actually good and fun too, and it just functions really, really well. The next one is not quite so light, and this is, um, but yet it is, and this is Happiness of the Katakuris from 2001, directed by Takasha Miike. Yes, the same guy who made one of the most brutal horror films ever, Audition, and he also made Visitor Q, one of the most fucked up horror films ever, also made a musical, Happiness of the Katakuris, and it is weird, and it gets dark, and it still is a horror film, um, but yet it's a musical. And it's an absolute blast. So I highly recommend checking that out. Darren Lynn Bowsman, the mind behind many of the Saw films, is a huge musical fan. And not only did Darren make one of the um, most, I'll say, popular recent horror musicals, Repo the Genetic Opera, which has definitely kind of achieved a rocky horror-ish level of cult fandom, in 2012, he made The Devil's Carnival, and he teamed up with amazing songwriter Terence Sedunich, who had created and written Repo the Genetic Opera again, to tell this story of a group of people who have been sent to hell, but hell is not hell as we know it. It's a carnival where they all have to um, find out what they did wrong and receive their ultimate punishment. Next up is 1981's Shock Treatment. I told you I would bring it back. Shock Treatment is a rather unknown film. Again, it's the sequel to Rocky Horror, but in a way it isn't, but yet it is. It uses the characters from Rocky Horror. Riff Raff is still in there, Magenta is still in there, Brad and Janet make a return, but at the same time, the plot is completely different. The plot is about Brad and Janet, who are a married couple now, having some marital issues, who agree to go on a reality show where a TV audience will be watching Brad and Janet's every move and evaluating them. Made in 1981, this one feels so contemporary, especially when you look at shows like The Bachelor and uh, Big Brother and um, all of these other reality shows where we examine people's lives. This is what it feels like. And it was made in 1981. It did not do well at the time. It definitely has not gotten the same acclaim that Rocky Horror did, but there is something really fascinating about Shock Treatment. It still has a lot of kind of weird, awkward, holy shit, I can't believe I'm watching this moments to it, but there is still something really smart about it. Next up, jumping several decades forward, is Reefer Madness the Musical from 2005. This one stars Kristen Bell and Alan Cumming. And Reefer Madness the Musical is based off the 1930s exploitation, quote, educational movie Reefer Madness. And in the original Reefer Madness, which was made as this educational um, film also called Tell Your Children, it was all about teenagers taking one puff off of a joint and then going insane and killing themselves or going so insane they can never come back from it. And so this musical really fights against this. It is the most pro-marijuana thing I have ever seen. It really does just paint this picture of the 1940s and 50s America as being very shallow, very scared, very paranoid of everything. Um, and it explores elements not only of drug use, but of racism, of our fear of communism, of our love of atomic weapons, 
Um, it just really tackles a lot of social issues um, of fears of immigration, which feels really topical today. And so this one, um, it's been many years since I've seen it, but I was always so impressed with what they did with this and how they were able to take um, this exploitation film that most people kind of watched as a joke now. It was definitely watched for more kitsch value and turn it into something that was very smart and kind of a jabbing political satire. Next up comes Poltergeist from 2006, which is also somehow a jabbing social satire. Poltergeist made by Troma is a super trauma film. It is over the top. There's moments where you can't believe what you're watching. It is just wrong in every capacity, but it is fun. It is about a group of people who build a KFC-esque chicken shack on top of a Native American burial ground and it becomes haunted. And it is just as over top and wrong and wild as it sounds, but somehow it has a lot of social commentary about fast food establishments and how they treat their workers and the respect that we show for um, different cultures. It's all in there in the most trauma way possible. Next up is The Lore from 2015. This is a bonkers musical, but everything in it is portrayed as very serious. None of it is portrayed as being comedic, even though that you will sit there with your jaw hanging wide the whole time. This is about um, two mermaids who come out of the sea and form a kind of disco-ish rock band. And uh, they know that their time is coming. It's very kind of siren-esque where they know that they have to start killing people. Um, they have to eat humans in order to survive. But for the time being, they join a rock band. Next up is just from a couple of years ago, 2017. It wasn't released in the States until 2018. Anna and the Apocalypse. And this is a musical tale of a zombie outbreak on Christmas Eve. So fun, so fantastic, and absolutely amazing music. And the last one I'm going to recommend is a true deep cut. So much so that I don't even think it's ever been released in the United States. So you may have to dig for this one. And this is called Midnight Ballad for Ghost Theater. And this is a 2006 film from South Korea. I happened upon this one day while I was going through an international film store in New York City. There was a shop that I loved to go to in Chinatown in New York City because they would always carry these Chinese and Hong Kong horror films that we weren't able to find here in the States. And that is where I found Midnight Ballad for Ghost Theater. And I bought it. And I didn't even know if at the time it had subtitles, but I was so intrigued by it that I had to get it, even if I couldn't actually understand what they were saying. Luckily, it did have subtitles. And this is still one of my favorite gems that I have found. The whole setup of Midnight Ballad for Ghost Theater is that a girl's grandmother is dying and her grandmother says that for her final wish, she wants to go back to this movie theater she used to go to and see a movie one last time. And she goes to the movie theater and she completely disappears. No one knows what happened to her. So the young girl decides to get a job working as a box office attendant at this theater to try to figure out what happened, to try to solve her grandmother's mystery. And what she ends up finding out is that all of these ghosts work at the theater. And she, she hears all about these different ghosts and they tell their story and they're all ghosts from different eras of film history. And so it's a really fascinating look at film history in addition to just being kind of a fun horror musical. 
This one I've been told has kind of a rocky horror-ish cult following in South Korea, though it, to the best of my knowledge, has never been released here in the States. So if you are in for a total deep cut, weird international horror musical, check out Midnight Ballad for Ghost Theater. I know horror musicals are not everyone's bag, and I would be shocked if 25% of my normal listeners made it through this entire episode. Because again, musicals are a niche audience. Horror films are a niche audience. When you combine the two of those together, you end up with so few people who are as passionate about them as I am. But for those of you who are, let's keep watching, let's keep pushing, and let's keep hoping for more horror musicals on the horizon. Thank you guys so much. I will be back next week with something more brutal, I promise. So have a good one and stay safe, everyone. University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Saunier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Wynerdy, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.